0: Open the Word of God with me this morning to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. As we have progressed through this epistle, the last two chapters, the subject was justification by faith, that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. God's plan for the life of the believer includes three phases. Phase one, we normally call salvation, but it is more technically referred to as justification. This takes place at the cross, when the individual realizes that he cannot save himself on the basis of his own works or effort. It is not on the basis of legal requirement, legal obedience moral obedience, but on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. And he responds to the command of Acts sixteen, thirty one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At that moment, of faith alone in Christ alone, we are justified. And we have studied that extensively over the past several weeks, where we have seen that what takes place at salvation is that even though we have No righteous standing before God and can't have no righteous standing before God, no matter how good we are, no matter how many good deeds we perform, no matter how nice we are, in spite of our personalities sometimes or because of our personalities, no matter what it is, we can't gain any favor with God. God just is not impressed with us one little bit, so it is not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of His mercy, He has saved us. And so we, at the moment of salvation, are justified by, by faith alone, and God imputes to us the perfect righteousness, as He imputes to Jesus Christ, or has imputed to Jesus Christ all of our sins. At the moment of our salvation, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when His perfect righteousness looks at the perfect righteousness in us, God's righteousness accepts us, so God's justice can then bless us, and we are declared just or righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because of the righteousness of Christ. That's phase one salvation. Phase two salvation is more specifically called sanctification. Sanctification from the Greek word hagias, the Hebrew word kadosh has to do with being set apart. That's the basic meaning of that word. We are in the process of sanctification being set apart for the service of God. Just as in the Old Testament in the temple, the various vessels in the temple were set apart. They were said to be holy to the Lord, kadosh. They were set apart for the service of the Lord. That does not mean that they are inherently morally perfect, but that they have been set apart for the service of God. And in the same way, the believer is set apart through the process of sanctification. It is sometimes called experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification as the believer goes from spiritual infancy toward spiritual maturity under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and through the learning and application of Bible doctrine. Then at death, the believer is absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. And this is phase three, salvation, which is glorification. At justification, we are saved from the penalty of sin. At sanctification, we are saved from the power of sin. And at phase three, glorification, we are saved from the presence of sin. We no longer possess a sin nature. Now... In Galatia, they had a problem, for after Paul left, there were a group of Judaizers that came in and said that faith in Christ wasn't enough. There had to be legal obedience. They emphasized the law, which tells us that their understanding of righteousness was a moral righteousness. This is one of the greatest issues of confusion in Christianity today, is to confuse morality with spirituality. That the spiritual life is not based upon your advance in morality. Morality is for every member of the human race. Morality is for believer and unbeliever alike. Morality is part of what we call establishment truth. What God has provided for the orderly development of civilization. It's the basis for law. It is. It undergirds law, any ethical system undergirds the practice of law, which promotes order in society, civilization, dealing with criminality, uh, judicial systems. All of this is part of moral righteousness. It's for believer and unbeliever alike. But it is not the basis for man's relationship with God. Man's relationship with God is based on something other than his own morality. It is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And in this age, in the church age, we have a unique spiritual life. In the Old Testament, they were not indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. They were not filled with God the Holy Spirit. In fact, the term that we use to describe the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is endowment. Endowment. In order to distinguish it from the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit in this age. It was temporary. That's the key word you need to remember about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It was temporary. It was not permanent. In the church age, you have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was temporary and it was limited to a very, very few. In fact, I think there were probably less than 50 people... In the Old Testament, at least less than a hundred people throughout the entire Old Testament period who were endued by God the Holy Spirit. It was unique. It was designed for a specific purpose. It was related to the government and administration and advancement of the theocratic kingdom. Now, that's maybe a word new to some of you from the word theocracy. Theocracy means the rule of God, just as democracy literally means the rule of the mob or the masses. This refers to the rule of God, and under the Mosaic law, the judicial system that God provided Israel, under the Mosaic law, God established a theocracy. There was no monarchy involved initially. God was the king, and he administered the kingdom of Israel through a variety of rulers, through Moses, later through the judges. But it was only when the people wanted to be like everybody else that God gave them a king. Up to that point, they were ruled. Uh, God was the head of the government. The bureaucracy was the priesthood, made up of the priesthood and the prophets. So, endowment was related to those who were God had, had set up in order to run the government. This involved the priests... Not all priests, but some priests. It involved the temple workmen, such as Aholiab and Bezalel, who were craftsmen. And the Holy Spirit endued them with specific power and wisdom, skill, in creating all of the artifacts, the, the gold work that was to go into the te- uh, tabernacle and temple. It had nothing to do with their spiritual life. It had to do with a specific function related to the theocratic administration. Uh, Kings such as Saul and David and a few other kings were endued by God the Holy Spirit for the purpose of wise leadership, ruling the country uh, and advancing them spiritually. But not all of the kings were endued with the Holy Spirit, and they could lose it. For example, Saul, in his disobedience, lost The endowment of of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit was removed from Saul because of his sin. That can never happen to a believer in this age. It happened to Saul because of his advanced disobedience and his advanced carnality. And it was specifically related to his rulership. And when God God, the Father removed the Holy Spirit from Saul, at that same point in time he had Samuel... The prophet anoint David to be the next king. Now, David did not become the king at that point, but at that point he received the Holy Spirit who worked in David for a while to prepare him for the kingship until God finally removed Saul under the sin unto death at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. So, some kings and some prophets, especially those who were, uh, giving the scriptures, those who were involved in the inspiration of scriptures such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. So these were men who had a temporary, there was a temporary ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was not related to their spiritual life. It was related to their, their plan, the, the plan and purpose God had for them in the administration of the kingdom And the spiritual life in the Old Testament was based upon the faith rest drill. That's all they had was the the revelation of God and to believe God, and their spiritual life was based on the faith rest drill. But something radical happens in the church age. So from the time of the creation of Adam and Eve, the beginning of human history, up to the cross, during the entire age of the Gentiles and the age of Israel, spirituality is different. But beginning with the cross and the ascension of Christ to heaven in the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, during the church age, there is a unique spiritual life, a unique life based upon God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the term spiritual life does not relate to, as we will see in the next hour, does not relate to the Holy Spirit, but relates to the fact that As a believer, at the point of salvation, you are regenerated. God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit and imputes that to you instantly and simultaneously with your faith alone in Christ alone. That is your spiritual life. And that spiritual life in the church age is empowered and advanced by dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. This is found in Galatians chapter 5 where we are told to walk step-by-step procedure Walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it is contrasted with the flesh. There are only these two options. The Holy Spirit or the flesh. The Holy Spirit or the sin nature. One or the other. There's no third something. There's no in-between something. There's no uh, transition stage between one and the other. The Bible makes it clear, as we will see in this passage, that there are only two options. At any moment in time, you are either operating in the power of your sin nature or you are operating on the power of the flesh. So with that background, let's look at the first five verses of Galatians chapter 3. And Paul does not mince words here at all. I don't think too many Christians would be very happy today with the pastor who addressed them with the kind of language that the Apostle Paul uses in these first five verses. He is very strong. He calls them basically ignorant morons because of the way they have departed from, from grace. That's not the way most people picture a pastor. It's not the kind of gentle, loving kindness that people think a pastor ought to demonstrate. But where doctrine is concerned, especially because of salvation doctrine, because of its impact on someone's eternal destiny, we are not talking about just people's opinions or interesting, interesting truth or speculations. We are talking about someone's eternal destiny and the quality of their eternal destiny in terms of the results of their spiritual life. And if one does not advance in spiritual life, or if one does not understand grace and faith, and operate his spiritual life on the same basis of his salvation, then he's going to end up an absolute failure in the Christian life. If you, if you think that the spiritual life is based on morality, then you will be a failure as a believer, a failure as a Christian. Everybody around you may think you're just some wonderful Christian because you are so moral and so righteous, but God sees it as wood, hay, and stubble. So these are important issues in terms of our eternal destiny. So Paul begins, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so ignorant? Have you begun by the Spirit? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He begins with a very, very strong word in the nominative masculine plural of the I mean, it's operative masculine plural of. uh, Anoetos, meaning this is from the root noose. This is spelled A-N-O-E-T-O-S. This is from the root noose or mind. This negates it. So it's talking about people who are ignorant, moronic, uh, absolutely. The emphasis here is on their inability and their failure To perceive the truth and to operate on the truth. This is because of their negative volition. Remember, spiritual issues are never based on human IQ. Spiritual issues are based on spiritual IQ, which comes at the point of salvation. At the moment of salvation, here you are. Let's draw a picture here. We'll use a square. Here you are. You have a soul. And you have a human spirit. And you have a body. This is the soul. This is the human spirit. And this is your physical body. Now in your soul, you have mentality. You have a mind. And we measure the capacity of a person's mentality with a measuring rod we call an intelligent quotient or an IQ. But your soul, without the human spirit, is absolutely unable to perceive spiritual truth. At the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to you a human spirit. That human spirit interacts with your soul so that with your mentality you can understand doctrine. But that human spirit works in conjunction with the filling of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the great intellectual equalizer for the believer your human iq your background your educational training is not a limiting factor when it comes to understanding doctrine for bible doctrine is designed for every single believer it's designed to be able to be understood by every believer and it is god the holy spirit under the filling ministry of god the holy spirit he makes doctrine understandable to the individual through the, the interaction of the human spirit with the soul. Remember, the human spirit mentality, we understand things with our mind, with our mentality. The, humans, the soul contains self-consciousness, mentality, volition, emotion, and conscience. The human spirit does not possess mentality. So you don't understand things with your human spirit. The human spirit is distinct from the soul. The human spirit is like, uh, one illustration is that I, I would use, it's like the hand in a glove. The glove is rather limp and has no real function, functionality without the hand being inside of it. Once the hand is inside of it, the glove then has a, has a shape and a form and, and uh, the, the hand makes the, the glove able to do certain things. In the same way, the soul, with relation to spiritual things, is limp and lifeless. But the human spirit interacts with the soul, energizing all of the different facets of the soul, the self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and, and conscience, so that they can function toward God. The human spirit is that immaterial aspect of our being which allows us to have a relationship with God. Without the human spirit, we cannot have a relationship with God. Now, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes doctrinal discernible to us, so that when the pastor teacher communicates doctrine to us, then under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, he takes this spiritual truth, which is called pneumaticos in the Greek in First Corinthians chapter two, four twelve through fourteen. And he makes it clear and understandable to the believer. When the believer understands it, and this is a very important concept. You cannot believe what you do not understand. Let me say that again. You cannot believe what you don't understand. Now, a lot of people think that when they're sitting in the pew and they hear the pastor communicate something, that because they understand the words and the sentence structure of what he has said, that they really understand the doctrine. They may or they may not. I've seen people sit in pews for years, and they can articulate back to you exactly what the pastor says, but they do not truly understand the doctrine that has been communicated. And they think they have epinosis in their souls but just because they believed it. What we often say when we teach this is that under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, he takes the spiritual truth, the pneumaticos, and makes it understandable. And when it's understandable, it enters into the mentality of the individual as gnosis, which is academic knowledge. But for it to be academic knowledge, you have to truly understand it. This, and, and the Holy Spirit works through your human spirit and the mentality of your soul. But if you're not thinking about it, if you're not taking that's what, why the Old Testament emphasizes the concept of meditation. It's not like Eastern meditation where the idea is to empty your mind, but it's the idea of, of cogitating on Scripture, running it, ruminating on it, Over and over in your mind. When you come to Bible class and you learn doctrines, not just to write it down in your notebook and say, well, I believe that because that's what the pastor said. And he believes it and it sounded good to me, so I believe it. But that doesn't mean you understand it. And you have to understand it and think about it and have that full comprehension before it can be gnosis. If you say, well, he said it and I believe it, without it going through your own comprehension, then what you're really trying to do is ride along on the coattails of someone else's understanding. And the spiritual life is based on what's in your soul, and your spiritual life is not based on what's in my soul. So we have to move along on the basis of of what we understand. And it becomes gnosis. And then at that point, our volition enters in again. We either reject it or we accept it. We're either negative to doctrine or we are positive to it. And at that point, under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, it is transferred from the left lobe of the mentality of our soul where it resides as gnosis. This is called in the Greek nous, N-O-U-S. And it is transferred into the right lobe which is called the heart in English, R. Cardia in the Greek, Lave in the Hebrew, K A R D I A. And there it becomes Epinosis E P I G N O S I S. Is that even legible to you? Okay, move it up a little higher where it becomes epinosis. And this is doctrine that is usable. At this point, it's assimilated into our thinking because we have understood it and we have accepted it by faith. The God, the Holy Spirit, makes it, assimilates it into our thinking. It's like the process of metabolization. For example... You need food in order to be able to think and in order to be able to function physically. Now, if you go to the grocery store and you buy an array of groceries, you buy all sorts of canned goods and vegetables and frozen entrees and whatever, and you bring it home and put it in the pantry and in the refrigerator, that doesn't do you any good, does it? It has to be cooked, prepared, and eaten that's part of that process is the is the responsibility of the pastor teacher. He is the chef. He is the one who takes the the basics of doctrine what is communicated in the word of God and he prepares the meal so that you can eat it. Once that plate is put in front of you then you have to exercise your volition to eat. You exercise your volition, and you take your fork, and you pick up the piece of steak, and you put it in your mouth, and you chew it, and then you swallow. Up to the point of swallowing, every act is your volition. Now, this is analogous to what Jeremiah says, I heard your words, and I did eat them. Now, what happens after you swallow in, your phys- in the physical process? From that point on, non-voluntary muscles take over. Your volition is no longer involved. An automatic procedure takes over where th- that food goes into your stomach. Chemical processes take over. Acids are secreted and, and the food is broken down and converted into various chemicals, one of which is sugar, and then it is absorbed through the lining of the stomach into the, into the blood. The blood transfers those nutrients to the cells in your brain, cells in your body. It moves oxygen to those cells and removes, uh, uh, not uh, oxygen, uh, what is it? Uh, carbon, carbon dioxide, I kept thinking carbon monoxide, it takes carbon dioxide away from those cells and, and so cleanses those cells and those cells are allowed to grow. That's all non-voluntary. Once those nutrients go to those cells, to your brain cells and to your muscle cells, and we'll just talk about muscle cells, that's not the end of the procedure. isn't? That doesn't make those muscles grow. Then you have, that's your second act of volition. You have to decide to utilize those muscles. You can just stay in bed and those muscles will atrophy. And that's what happens spiritually with a lot of believers. Even at this point they can go negative to doctrine, and when opportunities come to apply doctrine, they have that opportunity to be negative or positive. And they can decide not to use that which has become usable. In the analogy, as you take in doctrine, uh, up to that point, it's positive volition, but it's God the Holy Spirit who automatically stores that into your soul. That's like the, the breakdown of food and the storage of that food and transfer of those nutrients into the various blood cells, muscle cells, brain cells in your body. That's the process of epinosis where it becomes usable. But it's usable. There's a potentiality there. You have to use your volition and, and, and apply it in the tests that come. Just like somebody who, somebody who works out and exercises their muscles, you go to the gym, you pick up the weights, and you test those muscles That's how growth takes place. If you don't exercise, then those muscles will atrophy or you'll just keep them at a a certain level or maybe they'll gradually deteriorate and that happens over time as we get older and those muscles uh, become weaker and we put on fat instead of muscle tissue and we become less and less healthy as a result of that. And so that's the analogy is we have to take in doctrine and it's stored and this is a process based on the Holy Spirit but it is not divorced from the use of our volition the Holy Spirit makes it usable but we have to choose to understand it we have to accept it by faith and then we have to apply it whenever we get that opportunity now what had happened here that's the spiritual process it's based on God the Holy Spirit and it's not based on setting up some sort of artificial ethical standard or system which is called law here We saw last week or in the last several weeks as we studied the end of Galatians 2 that Paul uses the doesn't talk about the law, which would restrict the application to the Mosaic law, but he uses an anarthrous construction in the Greek, which means he doesn't have a definite article there, which means that law should be understood in terms of its uh, highest sense or highest quality sense, and it can refer to any legal system whatsoever. Not just the Mosaic Law, but any kind of moral, ethical, legal system. And Christians are always coming up with all sorts of taboos and all sorts of things that if you're a Christian, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls that do, or whatever it might be, not going to movies, not playing cards, not going to the theater, uh, whatever it may be, Christians are always coming up with things that the Bible never specifically addresses and making them sin. And if you would just follow this standard and follow these three or four principles, our terrible two or fearsome five or nasty nine, whatever they may be, then you'll advance to spiritual maturity. And they confuse production with what underlies production. And what underlies production is this whole process. The spiritual life is not getting out, getting involved in church, getting involved in all sorts of spiritual activities. That's putting the cart before the horse. The spiritual life starts with learning and understanding doctrine. I would rather have a church where people come in and all we do is study the Word for two or three years and not get into anything extra, not get into even teaching Sunday school or anything like that because if people don't have spiritual content in their souls, then everything else that you're doing in terms of production is just human good. You're just going through the motions because you get the idea that, well, if we're a church... This is what we ought to be doing. But you can only do what you have the spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth to accomplish. We want to be doing things that accrue towards divine good, not doing things just because, well, that's what churches do. So you're always limited or should always be limited in terms of the spiritual growth of the congregation and the spiritual gifts and talents available. And if it's not there, then it's not up to the Lord. to The Lord has decided not to provide it. But the Galatians are trying to operate on the basis of law. So Paul really reams them out because of their ignorance. In carnality, they have rejected the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in teaching them doctrine. And they have rejected the truth. And because of that, they are focusing on legal obedience and morality and defining spirituality in terms of of um, legalism. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? There we have a relative clause, and the verb is the aorist active indicative of baskaino. Baskaino has to do with sorcery or witchcraft. Who has uh, deceived you is also, a, I think, a little better translation here. and gives you the idea it's not so much the, the operation of the occult here as it is the deception from the legalist. The aorist tense just indicates that it has happened in the past. The active voice means that it is the Judaizers who have performed the action of the verb, which is to deceive and to distract the Galatians from the truth of God's word. It is in the indicative mood, indicating the certainty and the reality of their distraction from the truth of God's word you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you and then he says before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified and the word here that's translated publicly portrayed in the greek is the aorist passive indicative of prographo this is what it looks like in the greek It is a compound word, P-R-O, the preposition pra plus the root word grapho, which is the Greek for writing, to write. And it means something that was written ahead of time and literally in terms of its etymology, but it came to refer to a public advertisement or a public notice. If somebody wanted something or they were going to announce a public lecture or something like that, they would... They would write it up on an announcement and put it, post it around town so that people would know what was coming. And in this idiom that the Apostle Paul is using, he's saying, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. This was a reference to his teaching when he came to Galatia and how over and again he taught publicly The truth of God's Word, that Jesus Christ, who was undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever in the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And he continually explained the significance of the cross, the significance of Christ's atoning death on the cross and his spiritual sacrifice on the cross, as he died in our place he paid our penalty scripture says that the wages of sin is death but the free gift of li- uh, the free gift of god is eternal life in jesus christ our lord jesus christ died on the cross as our substitute when he went to the cross for 3 hours between noon and 3 p.m. god the father poured out on jesus christ every single sin that is ever committed in human history. These sins were imputed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was absolute perfection. He was conceived of a virgin, born of a virgin, and He had no sin nature. He was Not only did He have no sin nature, but Adam's original sin was not imputed to Him, so that He went to the cross perfect. Scripture says, "...He who knew no sin was made sin for us. The sins of all humanity were poured out on Jesus Christ because God is omniscient and knows all the knowable. He knows every single sin that is ever committed in human history. You may surprise yourself, but you will never surprise God. God knows every sin that will ever be committed by every single human being and He poured out all those sins on Jesus Christ who bore the penalty in His own body on the cross. He died as our substitute so that by faith alone, In Christ alone, we can then benefit from his work on the cross, and it is applied to us under the principle of imputation and justification. So Paul refers back to the fact that this was his standard operating procedure when he was in Galatia to continually teach and explain all of the aspects of Christ's work on the cross to the Galatians. So he refers back to that. You were clearly taught the truth. In fact, we know from Galatians chapter 1 that they responded to the truth and they believed in Christ as their Savior. But it did not take them long after Paul left to revert back or to be influenced by the Judaizers. Now, Paul wants to explain in this chapter exactly what is going on and what the issue is that they have to address. That the issue is that God's plan is based on grace, not on works. Just as he explained in the second chapter that salvation was by grace and not by works, that the spiritual life is going to be based on grace and not on works. He is going to do this by referring to their reception of the Holy Spirit and drive it home by looking at one particular incident. This is verse 2. Again, it is very strong language. I think the best translation is I only want to know one thing. One and only one thing. It's all that matters. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of law, literally, or by hearing accompanied with faith? It's a genitive of association there. Hearing accompanied or an association with faith. So that refers back to what I explained earlier, that when you hear and understand the word, you have to believe it for it to have spiritual value. When they heard the gospel, God the Holy Spirit made it clear to them. They understood the truth of the gospel and accepted Christ by faith alone. Now they're trying to do it by works. They're confused about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and Scripture tells us that there are seven ministries of the Holy Spirit related to the salvation of the believer. So let's review the seven ministries of God the Holy Spirit for the believer. It's amazing how many people confuse these ministries and do not understand that these are distinct ministries and they try to make them identical. They try to make them synonymous. But they are distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit uh, in in the life of the believer. First of all, we have common grace. Common grace. This is the undeserved merit of God, and favor of God toward all mankind, believer and unbeliever alike. Scriptures refer to the fact that God causes the rain to to fall on the on the saved and unsaved, the righteous and the unrighteous. He provides food for all mankind, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. Good weather. Uh, crops, the ability to live, all these things are part of common grace. In fact, the Word of God is part of common grace because God provides that so that all men can come eventually to a knowledge of the saving work of Jesus Christ if they are positive to doctrine. So that is common grace. Second category is efficacious grace. Efficacious grace is that grace which is effective. That grace which is effective towards something. Now, Efficacious grace means that, at the remember, at the moment of salvation, you are spiritually dead. You can do nothing. Your faith has value not because it has value in and of itself. This is one of the greatest problems today. We talked about it last Sunday morning in the second hour in John, and we'll cover it some more this Sunday morning, that people do not understand faith. They want faith to have some sort of intrinsic value of its own. So they will talk about saving faith. That somebody can have faith in Jesus that is not saving. But the Bible doesn't recognize anything like that. There is only one kind of saving faith, and that is a faith that looks to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You are spiritually dead. As spiritually dead, your works, or whatever you do, has no value. So you exercise positive volition at the point of gospel hearing, and you put your faith alone in Christ alone. So you exercise faith in Christ, and God the Holy Spirit takes that faith in Christ and makes it effective for salvation, so that you are saved through faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. That is efficacious grace. The third category of grace related to the believer is regeneration. Regeneration is a technical theological term that derives from the Scripture. Titus 3.5 says that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is also referred to as the new birth or the second birth, and is that process whereby God the Holy Spirit creates in us a new human spirit and imparts that to us. We have a physical birth and then we have a spiritual birth. And because of that new human spirit, we can now have a relationship with God and we can grow spiritually. And that will be uh, a more detailed study for us in the coming weeks in John chapter 3 in the second hour. Regeneration, Titus 3 5. We have common grace, efficacious grace regeneration, and then at the moment of salvation, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, not only does God the Holy Spirit make our faith effective for salvation, create and impart to us a new human spirit, and impute to that new human spirit the eternal life of God, so that we have eternal life, but he, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. And we studied that in detail several weeks ago, In John, where we saw that what takes place at the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is that God the Son uses the Holy Spirit to place us or to identify us with His death, burial, and resurrection and to place us, identify us in Christ so that we are said as believers to be in Christ. We are one with Christ and united together in His body. This takes place at salvation. It is not an experience. It is not evidenced by anything. The only way you can know that you have been baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, or in fact any of these ministries of God the Holy Spirit, is by going to God's Word and learning them from the passages there. It's not experience. Just because you feel some rush at the moment of salvation doesn't mean... It doesn't have anything to do with God the Holy Spirit or salvation. You're just elated because now you know you're not going to spend eternity in the lake of fire, and so you're excited about that. And there's an emotional response to the truth of doctrine. But that is, does not have anything to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and it, also we are indwelt. We're sealed. We'll take... Sealed will be five. Sealing of the Holy Spirit has to do with... It was a Roman concept where a person had a signet ring with his personal family seal on it. And when he took that seal and placed it on something, it was a sign of ownership, a sign of possession. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit is that act whereby God the Father seals us permanently as His possession. It is related to our adoption, which is a doctrine we will cover extensively in the latter part of this chapter, into chapter 4. It's related to our adoption as into the family of God. We are sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit, which means we are God's permanent possession for all eternity. We can never lose our salvation. There is no sin you can commit after salvation that would cause God to kick you out of the family. Why? Because from eternity past, billions and billions of centuries and millennia ago, God the Father knew every single sin you would ever commit. Whatever that sin is that you think you've committed, that has divorced you from the love of God, God the Father knew about it in eternity past. It's no surprise to Him, and He poured it out. He imputed it to Jesus Christ on the cross so that that sin is completely completely paid for. We were sealed at the moment of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. Sixth, we were indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That means God the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in the believer. This is a permanent ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is different from the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is different from the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And it has to do with also with the indwelling of the Shekinah glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in every believer. For it is God the Holy Spirit who creates the temple, the naos, the inner sanctuary for the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in the believer. Now, these ministries... Our ministry, this common grace is pre-salvation. Efficacious grace, regeneration, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, sealing of the Holy Spirit, and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are permanent ministries that take place in the life of the believer at the moment of salvation. But there's one other ministry that takes place in the life of the believer at the moment of salvation, but it's temporary. And that is the ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit. And you can lose that the moment you sin. So, Scripture says when we sin, we are grieving the Holy Spirit or we are quenching the Holy Spirit. To quench means to put out a fire. to So that the Holy Spirit's ministry is being ignored and it is quenching or grieving. And when we quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, we commit some sin... And we go from the status of spirituality to the status of carnality. In the status of spirituality, we're under the filling of the Holy Spirit. But when we sin, we've grieved or quenched the Holy Spirit. And now we're under the influence of nature. And from that point on, everything we do, even the good works that we perform are on the basis of the flesh not on the basis of the sin nature so paul goes on as he sets up this contrast he says did you at the moment of salvation receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing in association with faith are you so ignorant having begun by means of the spirit are you now being matured by means of the flesh that is a very, very important concept, a very important doctrine. Are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now being matured by the flesh? See, this is what happens with most Christians in most systems of theology, is they might get salvation right, but the spiritual life then is based on morality. There's no mechanic, there's no means of understanding the difference between good deeds that are done in the power of the sin nature and good deeds that are done in the power of of the Holy Spirit. How do we know? We know when we sin, but how do we recover? Whenever we sin, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. And now we're over here in this status of carnality. There has to be some method. There has to be some means. There has to be a mechanic for knowing that what we are doing is in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to walk by means of the Spirit, if we have been walking by means of the sin nature, how do we change course? We change course through 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've had discussions with several people over the years, and I always come down to this. How is it, if you don't believe that 1 John 1, 9 gets you the recovery of the filling of the Holy Spirit, how do you know whether what you are doing is from the flesh or from the Holy Spirit? And they have no answer to that. How do you distinguish between morality and spirituality? They don't have any answer for that. And this is the Galatian problem, is that under the influence of the Judaizers, they have reduced the spiritual life to legalism to a moral system, even though in some of these moral systems they do talk a lot about internal change as opposed to the externalism of of Pharisaism. Ultimately, the only mechanic is you have to be wanting to do the moral thing and doing the moral thing. They don't distinguish between the two. Now, Paul says, having begun. Having begun is an aorist participle which relates back to the uh, action that took place at the moment of their salvation. It precedes the action of the main verb, which is based on the verb teleo, which means to complete or mature. It is a perfect uh, middle indicative from epi teleo, which is the main verb that's translated being perfected, and that's a terrible translation. The 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 word group... Based on the Greek, teleio, T-E-L-E-I-O-O, whether we're talking about uh, teleios, which is the adjective, teleio, which is the verb, or, or any other form of the word, never have I found a place in the New Testament where it has the connotation of perfection. It always has the idea of completion, bringing something to a state of completion, bringing something to a point of realizing that it is everything it should be. Perfection has the idea of sinlessness. And in fact, there is a terrible heresy that's been prevalent in the church for a couple of centuries called perfectionism. That somehow at the moment of salvation, not only is the power of the sin nature broken, but so is its influence to a degree that after you're saved, you won't sin like you did before you were saved. And that you can reach a status of moral perfectionism where you will no longer sin again. And you'll every now and then run into somebody who claims that they haven't sinned in years. Usually what happens is they totally disregard all mental attitude sins, and they just focus on external behavior. But what Paul says here is, having begun, having started, having been saved by means of the Holy Spirit, faith alone in Christ alone, are you now being matured? So the issue here is spiritual maturity, being brought to completion. Are you now being matured by the flesh? And what this tells us, this is very important, is that we can try to be matured on the basis of fleshly activity, Or we can try to seek maturity on the basis of dependence on the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. Paul doesn't say, well, there's something here where you're somehow in the process between flesh and spirit. Only two options. You're either doing it under the power of your own sin nature, your own flesh, or under the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is going to focus on this whole issue as the test case for understanding the issue of grace in the spiritual life. Verse 4, he refers to them again to their initial salvation. Did you suffer so many things in vain? In other words, we know from our study in James on Wednesday night that every believer is going to go through a certain amount of suffering, testing, or adversity as a test to evaluate the doctrine that's in the soul. And as you go through these tests of faith, it gives you the opportunity to apply doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit and advance to maturity. In fact, James uses that same word, telios that's unfortunately mistranslated perfect in many translations of James 1, to refer to the process of spiritual growth in James 1, 2 through 4. Are you so full he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? In other words, was this vanity? You, you went through this suffering and adversity and you were trying to do, handle it with morality. You were trying to handle it with external obedience to the law, so that all of these tests that God brought into your life to advance you spiritually by means of faith and dependence upon the Holy Spirit was that just in vain and produced nothing because you're trying to do it in the power of your flesh? Verse five. does he then, that is he, God the Father then, who provides you with the Holy Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of law or by hearing in association with faith? Once again, it drives home the point. There's only two options. It's either human works or faith. These are the two options. Faith puts its focus on doctrine. On the Word of God. Faith realizes that I cannot do anything unless, I cannot apply anything unless I first learn it. I can't learn anything unless I'm in Bible class. I am amazed at how many times I hear people, and I've heard this for years, they come up with all kinds of problems in their life and they want to know how do I handle these problems, and they just haven't been faithful in attending Bible class. They haven't developed that reservoir of doctrine in their soul so that they can handle their present difficulties. And now they've got real problems. They just want to run to the pastor and somehow get all that they need so that they can face and handle this problem. And the pastor can't do it. It's unrealistic expectations on the part of the pastor. And the next thing you know, the pastor is being criticized because he just can't help me. Well, the problem is you had all the all the opportunities for help for years and years and years, and you fail to show up at Bible class, you fail to do your homework, you fail to meditate on the Word, you fail to understand it, you fail to believe it and accept it by faith under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and it was not assimilated, and now that you've got problems, you've got no resources to handle the problems. It's easier to face problems when we have taken the time to lay the foundation and the preparation through consistent study and intake of God's Word over the years before the hard times hit, than to try to make up for it at the last minute. I don't know if any of you ever went through school and missed a lot of school due to illness or anything where you had to take makeup tests, but I found that makeup tests were a lot harder to take when I had missed a lot than if I had just been there the first time and taken the test at that point. And that's the problem. We always want, want to play catch up ball. And we're there when life, we're there in Bible class when life is going tough. But when life is going pretty good, we find a number of other things to do and we're just not there. And then when life is tough again, we expect the pastor to somehow wave his magic wand and help us solve all our problems right away. And that's just such an arrogant, self-centered approach to life. The key is to be in Bible class every opportunity you can. Make that the priority of your life so that When the tests of life come, we have the doctrine, we have the resources in our soul so that we can move forward. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the time today to look at your word. It's so clear that what we are doing with our life is either empowered by the flesh and following some moral external system of law obedience or it's done by faith. In you, faith in the Scriptures, faith in Christ alone for salvation, faith in the Scriptures for the spiritual life, dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit, or dependence on the flesh, one or the other. We thank you for the clarity of this. We pray that we may be challenged in our lives by these principles, realizing that the only thing that counts, the only thing that has value for eternity, is that which has been produced in us when walking by means of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that has value when we arrive in heaven is that which has been produced by the Holy Spirit. May we take the time to make this a priority in our life to understand doctrine and to walk consistently by means of the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.